Roaring Elephant podcast for the 6th of February 2018. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Jon, and here's my co-host, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jon. How are the coffee beans today? The coffee beans are good, my friend. You're a horrible person. I mean, I can't believe you're eating raw coffee beans. Well, they're not raw. Ah. I mean, they're roasted. <laughs> and, and most importantly... Covered in dark chocolate, yeah. <laughs> because that's how I roll. So yes, <sighs> this so this painful. particular episode, at least in my case, is powered by dark chocolate-covered coffee beans. Mm. That's where yeah. my energy comes from today. Yeah, I'm in Holland, so I, I should say it's done on milk, but I don't drink milk. So instead of that, let's talk about some Hadoop news. But before let's. we do that, before we do that, you have a little yeah message about the DataWorks Summit. I do. Uh, and that is that uh, while we've mentioned previously the uh, DataWorks Summit that's coming up in Europe, the call for papers is open for DataWorks Summit San Jose. So the summit itself, 13th to 15th of June, and the deadline for papers is February the 9th. So you've still got a little bit of time left three, to get your abstract days. in, get your session approved. Plan your time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Tell people lots of exciting things about what you're doing with big data. And if you have a nice uh, subject, maybe let us know. We'll, maybe we'll have you on the podcast as well. That sounds good to me. All righty then. Talking about news, it's a roaring news episode. And I'm going first. Let me Tell me some news, Jan. Tell me some news. Well, the first article or slew of articles, I should say, isn't really a news thing, but it's a, a four-part series from uh, Samson Hu, and it's on the Medium website, which has been source of our articles before, mm. and mm. who actually gave me a pop-up, you've been reading so many articles now, please sign up, which I found <laughs> disturbing, but I just dismissed it. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, Samson Hu, he's actually working at a uh, company called uh, Wish, which is something about shopping and things which is less important than you would think for this article. Because basically what he's talking about is he joined a startup, a typical canonical, the, the real niche startup of a uh, Web.2 company as a data analyst and was uh, in, I was encountering there a legacy uh, duct taped together BI platform that didn't scale, didn't work, was slow and everything. And in his four articles, he kind of explains how he built the team, uh, rebuilt the infrastructure to make it all more agile, more, uh, yeah, ad hoc was possible, reporting was possible, but not at the same time. So making all of these things work together more efficiently. And it's, uh, the reason I have this, uh, slew in here is because it's mostly talking about the people aspect most podcasts and articles on Hadoop including ours I would say we talk an awful lot about the technology behind it but in the end it's the people that make the difference and uh, this is what this thing makes nice because uh, as he says it quoting from the article here what ended up saving the day was our eventual first data analyst to hire <laughs> 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 so I'm not going to go through the whole article because it's fairly long I mean it's a four-parter and each part is uh, pretty long to be honest uh, he goes from what he found how he built a foundation how he got data engineering in there how he added the data analysis on top of it and then ends with a little bit on recruiting We've done also some episodes on uh, data roles in big data. Recruiting was one of the one part mm -hmm. of it as well. 
So it was actually a nice read and kind of refreshing that even though he has some technical stuff in there, it's always about the uh, people basically behind it. The one part uh, of tech that was new for me is something called Luigi. I was going to say, I, I just was looking through it and... <laughs> Uh, yeah, a data pipelining tool called Luigi. <laughs> Hello, Nintendo. Are you listening? Yeah, well, I guess I'm more strict about Mario, but Luigi's more. Because <laughs> 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 basically, they're not doing real through and through Hadoop, though, cause, though they do have Hive as a part of their solution. So that's how it gets into the, the big data and space. They've got say. You know, some MongoDB and a few um, other sort of big data. Yeah, they've got a lot of big data. Involved. It's not just Hadoop, it's more of a big data thing. So it also gives you a nice example of how you can not have a point solution, but have something that the business can use. And business, I mm. mean the, the whole corporate environment from reporting, logging, uh, BI, whatever. They have a pretty simple, straightforward, and I think it can scale pretty well solution here that uh, other people can also benefit from. Yeah, And it's also, even though they're not really telling stuff that didn't work or lessons learned, they do start from a point that didn't work, that didn't scale, that didn't meet the end. And how they moved on to something that does. So it, yep. is, it is kind of a following their uh, journey, let's say, from a not big data to a big data environment and how they, uh, why they made the choices, how it works and what was important and not. And again, the human factor being very important here. Yeah, they very very useful for anybody, you know, managing people, building teams, developing mm -hmm. teams, that side of things. And the one thing that also struck me is that he doesn't mention data scientists once. Instead, mm. they have three roles. They have the data infrastructure engineer, the data mm -hmm. platform engineer, and the analytics engineer. Now, the analytics engineer is what I would think is what they call the data scientist. Although it's less of an exploratory role, but more of a reporting and insight gaining role. Which so, BI and yeah, more BI. Sense, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing here is that even though I predicted a couple of, a month ago that uh, data engineer was going away, well, maybe I'm right because it's going to split it into two, <laughs> having the data infrastructure engineer and the data platform engineer. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, if it's a win, I'll take it. But uh, <laughs> it just also shows that the, the different roles in different companies, they may have different names doing the same thing or having the same name doing different things. It's always important to see the context around it. Yeah. Four articles, all on Medium. Uh, links will be in the web, uh, in the in the show notes. We're not going to go in detail over the whole thing because that would take a couple of hours, and uh, we don't want to take that much of your valuable time. We never do that. But I enjoyed reading it. I'm not entirely convinced that everything there is to be taken as gospel. Mm -hmm. Always make it apply to your own own environment. But it's a nice read, and uh, I think people should read it. Fair enough. So. Speaking of things that people really should read or really should listen to, Not we've been banging on for quite a while <laughs> about the right way to do things. Um, so apparently five years ago, uh, research firm McKinsey published a set of best practices for multi-year strategic planning that uh, was really talking about big data projects and providing an overarching plan that projects would fit into and how to deliver tangible value to the business. Um, this article uh, came out in Tech Republic, 24th of January, uh, by and Mary Shacklett. And the problem is solved, right? It's done. It's finished. Yeah, not so much. So 
the McKinsey published this uh, this approach five years ago. We've been talking about exactly the same thing. Well, certainly for the length of time we've been doing the podcast, and certainly long before we were doing the podcast, and yet people still find themselves struggling to demonstrate the payoff of their big data investments. So, once more for the cheap seats, let's just run through this one more time, shall we? If people are still struggling, they still need help. So, let's see what we can do about this. Well, it's not just people keep on struggling. It's also more people join the uh, the crowd all the time and have Indeed. not heard the first story. Indeed. So, let's let's etch this. Let's carve this onto a hammer and slam it into a few more foreheads. Um, so... The first, so it's split into four really simple points. The first one is um, focus on short-term strategies, um, and it talks about sort of what has IT done for the business lately, and you know start off with something that will show an immediate benefit that will people will sit up and and listen, and you know you'll have made a change. You'll have made a change for the better. Um, the second point yeah, is... Hang on, hang on, hang on, because that first point is an important one because it's very counterintuitive because you're mm-hmm. doing a long-term strategic planning by focusing on short, short-term strategies. Yeah. And the idea being that it's the, it's the traditional, you know, you can't go or you shouldn't try and boil the ocean as your very first step. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, it feeds into the, the second point, which is why... I, kind of went pretty much straight into the, the yeah, second one. Give me a chance to interact at all here. Thank you. Very for much so. Cutting Yon off at the knees. Um, and that's because the second point is choose short-term projects that deliver immediate tangible impact. So these first two are you know very closely yeah. uh, closely linked. But again, it's it's getting that fast turnaround. You don't need to build a massive data lake as your first step to demonstrate the power of big data to an organization. You know, get a handful of data sources together on maybe a cloud platform that's easy to spin up, easy to get a few data sources in. You know, maybe you have to make some compromises, maybe to get through your infosec requirements initially, maybe you need to anonymize things or, you know, do whatever needs to be done. But get something done, get something built that shows the business this is what we could do. We, this is the the very first step on our journey to becoming data driven. Um, and you know, don't try and boil the ocean. Don't try and generate. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to get our entire organization's data into a data lake? You know, those are questions that you can be thinking about in the back of your mind, and you know, those answers will come later on. But don't don't start yeah, with that. And that's the thing, right? The answers will come later on because because this is totally new, there's no way you can make a long-term plan because you don't even know what the questions are. Yep. Yeah. Um so th- these are you know, these are really just great um sort of things to think about as you're going through this process. Um the third point again it's it should be common sense and yet as a very good friend of mine often says Common sense doesn't seem to be all that common. Um, and that's get users actively engaged in projects. Um, listen to users. Listen to some of their challenges. Maybe use that as a, an impetus for what one of your, you know, second or third, you know, short-term projects are. What, what are the things that are really your user base 
is struggling to understand. And it's also get them involved in the projects at the beginning, you know, get them engaged, get them thinking about the benefits of what this could deliver. And also avoids you building something beautiful that nobody ends up using. Yeah. I mean, how many times have we heard the, uh, if if we build it, they will come kind mm-hmm. of data lake. IT thinking, well, we've been reading all about this data lake thing. Let's go and build one, then everybody will use it. It's, it's, it's just, it's not the way to get, I mean, sometimes if you're very lucky and the stars align and planets align, you know, I have seen a few organizations that have made that work, but they've usually made it work at at a cost, and that cost is adoption, time, you know, getting people on board is a lot more difficult if you've built something without their consultation. Get people involved up front. Make them feel like they're part of the project. Yeah. Make them feel that, you know, they're going to directly benefit from what they're doing. And they will become your ambassadors to mm-hmm. to their individual business units. The, the, as soon as the word of mouth starts to spread about how people are, you know, finding things easier, getting more done quicker, understanding the the power of big data. And that itself will just accelerate the projects away. Yeah, not just for your users, but also for the people you have to work with, uh, compliance people, security people, infrastructure people. Having them also be a part of these things will remove blockers before they occur. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we often talk about... Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've often talked about these concepts, uh, it's a bit of a US-ism, I suppose, um, of, you know, the the tiger team, the sort of, you get experts from each of the major parts of your organization, someone from security, someone from storage, someone from data center, someone from compliance, you know, someone from BI, and so on and so forth. And you get a representative from each of these different groups um, that, you know, is a member of a virtual Hadoop team, and they all have the same goals to make this successful, to deliver, um, you know, results back to the business. And, you know, they they become your ambassadors. You don't need to necessarily form a dedicated big data team. Some organizations do go down that route, but it's not necessary um, as long as you approach things the right way. Yep. Nothing to add there. All right. And then the fourth and final point, because yes, so far we've only gone over three, believe it or not, is coordinate shorter-term projects with a long-term plan. Again, it sounds um, it sounds like common sense, but you'd be surprised or perhaps not surprised as to how often this, this doesn't uh, actually happen. And in fact, the, the article points out that sort of a chief... Uh, danger here is that occasionally you will get one person with a very strong um, vision or a specific idea on a short-term project, but and you know that might be a good idea for that short-term project. But if it doesn't contribute something to the overall endpoint, your overall strategic direction, you have to question: you know, is it right to go off down that particular cul-de-sac? Or does it make more sense to actually, you know, retain the focus, choose something that contributes to your overall vision, your overall progression? Yep. Couldn't so, say that myself. <laughs> well, I, I take that as the very highest compliment. So, I mean, we've been talking about this 
a lot. We will no doubt continue talking about this for many years as it's the sort of thing that people still seem to need help with. So we'll keep having it until it becomes common sense, right? Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a short article. The actually the um, the link to the uh, best practices from McKinsey is also in there. So we'll we'll probably call out both of those in the show notes if you want to read up a little bit more. All right, on to my next one, which is a uh, more technical one. It's mm-hmm. uh, on. Uh, towards datascience.com which I hadn't heard of before but it does have a little medium icon on there as well so I think they're somewhat related mm-hmm. and it's called a tour of the top 10 algorithms for machine learning newbies now 2018 is going to be the year of machine learning and AI I've been told by a lot of people already so <laughs> a little roundup of this stuff is interesting uh, as everybody probably knows by now by me rambling on about it machine learning Part of it is finding out what the ideal algorithm is for you to use to solve your particular problem. And there's a big, big, big bunch of them out there. In the olden days, you had to write them yourself using R or whatever statistical language you used. These days, for machine learning and more and more for uh, AI as well, actually, you just download a library link it in and use the function call. But that still means you need to know which of those will work well or not well for you. And this article has a list of the 10 most used machine learning algorithms. Now, most used according to the author, author, because there are a couple in here that I didn't find and a couple that I never heard of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that can also just be the fact that I'm a little bit out of date. So, so really, really silly question to... I wouldn't expect anything else from you, sir. ...start up this off. What's what's to stop people from just saying, well, this is my data, go and run all of the algorithms and tell me which one's best? Uh, okay, we're sidetracking from the article here. We are. Um, bottom line, time and money. Mm-hmm. That's one. And secondly, uh, some of these algorithms you know you don't want to use. And that's the thing about the... Uh, train fast, score slow, train slow, score fast. Mm-hmm. And some articles are good for one and not for uh, some articles. Some algorithms are good for one and not for the mm-hmm. other. So if you know you're going to put this algorithm behind a, an interactive website where the result needs to be instantaneous yep. and you've been spending time doing a train fast, score slow, mm-hmm. mm, a waste of time. Yep. And if you know in advance that this are, this little algorithm is very good, but it's going to take minutes to score a data point. Yeah, uh, yeah, great, but don't go there. So yeah. having some interest, some some uh, enough knowledge about these algorithms to know where they fit and how you should use them will help. Another reason why you shouldn't use all of them is sometimes when I do want to do prediction. I, mm-hmm. I I know what my inventory has been in the past. Okay, what I'm going to need to make for next season. Mm-hmm. Not all algorithms can do that. You have a lot of algorithms that do classification, where you just give the computer a bunch of data and the computer will classify it into the rich, poor uh, focus group or the, the, the yellow-green focus group or whatever. Mm-hmm. And really whatever, the machine learning is going to detect itself what the commonalities are between those things. If I'm trying to predict my inventory for next season, a classification algorithm will not do anything for me and vice mm-hmm. versa. So again, that's why these kind of lists are interesting. And that's probably also why you gave me that question. Having a little bit of knowledge about the in, in, uh, about these algorithms does help. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the 10 most used. It's not an exhaustive list. There's a lot more, and there's a lot more being made every day, I would hope. 
I mean, there's somebody creating a new algorithm all the time. The thing is that these are well-known and they perform well. They're predictable. You know that they will do what they promise to do. Very possible that somebody's building something that's a lot better than one of these existing ones, but the advantages are going to be incremental. And I'm particularly talking about machine learning here. If you're talking about artificial intelligence and neural networking, there's a lot of movement there still. Yeah. There, there are some clear winners coming up here, but there's a lot of movement still. In machine learning, in my experience, not so much. It's pretty much a done thing. And still things will change over the years, but it's never going to be this big bang of a new thing that is so much better than all the rest. It's going to be incremental at best. And at that point, having something predictable, trustworthy, in, in production environments, it has an edge. Fair enough. So without further ado, too late, I know. <laughs> Just going to go through them very quickly uh, and basically give you enough inform- a little bit of information on all of them, to be honest. If you really want in-depth, read this article and then go and read a lot more articles. But the first one is called linear regression. And linear regression is the one that most people have heard of when they do machine learning because that's the predicting thing. That's taking your uh, history, your 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 labeled data, as, as they call it, and predicting the future from it. If you haven't heard of it yet, you've at the beginning of your machine learning, if you're doing anything with prediction, linear regression is just a thing to go. There's a bit of information about the algorithm itself there, but basically just give a lot of data and it'll start predicting a curve and uh, you can plot uh, points on that curve. Simple, easy. And every platform I know of has support for this one. Second one sounds almost the same instead of linear regression it's called logistic regression and i've seen a lot of people think and i was yeah i've been guilty of that myself at the, my, in my younger years to think that okay that's also a predictive thing then right it's also regression well no it's a classification method and it's a binary classification so you can only use logistic regression to split your data into two halves and one half can be bigger than the other half yes i know it doesn't exist but <laughs> that's how you say it in english so in this case, logistic regression, again, a very well-known one. It's available in every platform out there. And if you want to do a simple classification problem between good and bad, left and right, or more specifically, cancer, no cancer, uh, will fail, will not fail, logistic regression will give you a pretty good uh, result. Then These two are the, the bread and butter of machine learning. They don't give you the most specific predictions or classifications, perhaps, but they will always be pretty good. Moving on, and this is where we get to a little bit more, yeah, lesser known, let's say, because basically the 10 most known, well, it's the two most known. Well, there's a third one that's a lot been used as well, which is, I think, the last one in the list. Third on the list, though, is linear discriminant analysis, which I have never used in my life. Basically, it's a uh, added on onto the logistic regression, I'd say. If you have more than two classes you want to uh, separate your data in, then linear discriminants can do that for you. So again, if you want to do something with classification, it can help you. Fourth one, classification and regression trees. Uh, Sounds it's in the name already classification, so it's a classification method, and regression trees are the third most used one. Based on binary trees, you just make kind of a choice decision, and that's actually a nice uh, differentiation from the others because the other ones basically will make a formula where prediction equals known data times a certain l- mathematical expression. 
Mm -hmm. X plus 2 plus 3 plus 5 divided by 23 equals your prediction, something like that. A tree will be a binary tree where you have a number of decision points where your data point will fall left or right and at the end fall in, in, a, in a certain bucket, which is what it's classifi classified as. Now, regression trees are pretty good, but they can be very slow. And that's why in a, in a bit further down, we'll talk about something called random forests, which is a much more useful way of using regression trees, to be honest. Moving on, because we don't want to spend hours talking on this, they talk about something called naive Bayes, which is based on the bell curve. It's a way of predicting stuff, of classific classifying stuff again, but again, it's pretty much a binary classification. Mm, I would go with uh, logistic regression myself, but it's there. And this is where you would say, yeah, try both and see what, what what's the best result. Again, it should be no more than downloading a library, calling a function, and having a result built. Number six on the list is k-nearest neighbors, and that's actually a complex one to explain, so I'm not even going to try, but the idea is that there, for your prediction, you will try and find points that are neighbors to the one you're trying to predict, and then take the average of the neighbors, and that's your predicted result. So, not a classification in this case, although you could do a classification as well, but uh, a bit more complex to comprehend, let's say. Moving on, learning vector quantization I've never used in my life, and I think that's because it's not actually machine learning, but it's a small artificial neural network algorithm. The advantage is that if you want to do k-neighbors, for example, you need a whole data set into memory, because if you want to define which are the nearest neighbors, you need to have all the neighbors in the memory to go through them. If you would use disk access, it would be way too slow. also means that this can be a slow-scoring one. The learning vector quantization is a optimization on that, although they use a totally different algorithm, which allows you to have smaller memory footprints and still do something similar. But I haven't used that one myself yet. Support vector machines, uh, SVM, it's another way of classification, the multiple classes here, so not going to talk too much about that. And just scrolling through, yeah, the one I want to spend a little more time on is bagging in random forests. And that is just to let you know that if you're doing something with a decision tree, look at random forests. Because what random forests will give you is one, a probably better result in your classification. And it'll be a lot faster and use less memory. Because it will do, uh, instead of doing a one big model, let's say, to one big binary tree where every data point has to go through the whole thing, it will make smaller trees based on subsets of your data, which are by itself less accurate, but by then making random trees and using multiple of those and averaging the result, you actually get a better result. It's one of the ways where machine learning is harder to comprehend, but works. <laughs> As if by magic. Uh, yeah, but that's, a, that's artificial intelligence. <laughs> Last one is called boosting and other boost, which is, well, uh, uh, it's how you would improve your features, to be honest. It's, I wouldn't put it in the same list, so I'm not going to talk about it. Anyway. The last takeaway, which is the last part of the article, is the most important thing, because that's where they ask the question, which algorithm should I use? Which was also your question when I started uh, this whole uh, diatribe. <laughs> and I'm going to quote from the article, the answer to the question varies depending on many factors, including uh, one, the size, quality, and nature of the data. 
two, the available computational time, and three, the urgency of the task, and I guess four, what you want to do with the data, but that's kind of implied, I'd say. And even an experienced data scientist cannot tell you which algorithm will perform the best before trying different algorithms. So even though if you have a list like this, it will give you a sub-selection. Okay, I'm doing prediction, I'm doing classification, binary classification, more than two classification sets, whatever. So these are the ones in that environment, that region, that context. So let's do all of these. And in that case, to finally answer your question, yeah, just run them all. And more and more platforms actually have this support now. I've seen SaaS having something in their expensive solution where you can just say, okay, this, 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 this algorithm, this data set, go. And it comes back and tells you this was the best one. Mm -hmm. And basically, now this is a simplification of the fact because there's a there's the, okay, use all the algorithms, but every single algorithm has something that's called hyperparameters where you can change how the algorithm itself works. So apart from using multiple algorithms, you should also iterate on one algorithm with different hyperparameter settings to see what gets better and worse. Because a good algorithm with bad hyperparameters can give you a worse result than a bad algorithm with good hyperparameters, and so on and so on. So again, it's a piece for the beginner. Well, beginner I mean nobody is a beginner machine learning because it's a very complex field to start and to, to, to begin with. But if you're still at the beginning, this is a nice overview. It's pretty up to date because looking at the date, it was released, I think that was last week or something, uh, January 20th. So it's a nice overview. And um, kudos to James Lee, or James Le, so one E, who built this uh, for giving us a nice overview. All right. Any more questions, sir? No, no. I asked my really dumb question up front, <laughs> and you educated me throughout. I hope I answered your question to your satisfaction. Pretty much, pretty much. Over to you. All right. So, moving from uh, machine learning, let's talk about some streaming, um, and specifically sizing streaming. Uh, we're right in the middle, uh, as it happens, of uh, a set of episodes here on the podcast around node sizing. And one of the things that, that comes up again and again is the answer, well, it depends. Um, and in fact, it is actually quoted right at the start of this article, it depends. But that's not a helpful answer, which is why we then try and go into a bit more depth. And this particular article, January 11th, uh, by Robert Metzger and Chris Ward, is how to size your Apache Flink cluster uh, a back-of-the-envelope calculation. Now, the first thing is, even if you're not using Flink, um, that I don't think really matters as much as maybe you might think it does, um, because this article goes into a reasonable amount of depth. Um, it talks about um, the use of things like Kafka and H uh, HDFS, um, it talks about the, the key parameters that you'll need to care about. So things like message size and throughput in terms of messages per second and um, you know, different keys and the kinds of hardware that you'll be using. Um, and it's, it goes into quite a reasonable uh, amount of detail. It's all still um, relatively high level in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but it does give you some nice examples of, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, a million messages a second and they're two kilobytes each, then, 
you know, look at these kind of numbers and, you know, divide that by the number of machines and that'll give you, so this number of you know, megabytes per second of throughput. So how would you achieve that? And it's the kind of um, sort of back, an envelope, back of an envelope uh, mathematics that it's talking about here is something that hopefully pretty much anybody um, can apply to their sort of streaming workloads and at least get a, a get an order of magnitude estimate as to what they're actually going to need to to be successful now these things are just that they're they're designed to give you order of magnitude sort of estimates of what you need i would never take these things as uh, as well this is all i'll ever need because they you know these are the numbers that were spat out by my calculator well you know real world you'll get peaks and troughs and you'll have uh, you know, data sizes will vary and, you know, things will evolve. So take it with a take it with a pinch of salt as it's intended, but it goes through a lot of what you need to know. It gives you a really good idea about, um, you know, how to size, how to scale, the core concepts you need to think about when doing this. As I say, it's specifically written as uh, how to size Apache Flink, but... In my mind, it's a really good set of guidelines for regardless of what your uh, your streaming workload might be. Yeah, the real takeaway here is that the method that he applied on getting the information to size his cluster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Nice. So it's interesting to say about Flink, because Flink is not something that you encounter that much uh, today. No, so no. Nope. Uh, also interesting. Also, data artisans, of course, are a big uh, contributor to Flink, if I remember yeah, serves. So that, of course, explains that one. And uh, by having interesting and useful articles like this, they will only help the Flink cause. Indeed. And, of course, you know, Flink, cool logo. <laughs> I have no idea what the logo is, to be honest. Really? Come on, it's the squirrel. Oh, yeah. It's the squirrel with the nut. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, with that, that's about <laughs> all the time we have for today. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information about the podcast and there's even a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. See you there.